welcome back uh, to Mutual Aberration Society. Uh, as usual, um, I'm Ryan Jackson, and today uh, the topic of discussion is another book, um, and this book is called uh, God is a Killer, and I have on the person who wrote the book, uh, Max Thrax. Now, uh, Max, I don't know if you've listened to any episodes of this before, but uh, this is the point where I have my guests give their own introduction, um, so tell the listeners uh, who Max Thrax is. <laughs> Hi, I'm Max Thrax. I'm a crime writer. My neo-noir novel, God is a Killer, came out last year with a British publisher called Close to the Bone. I'm also managing editor of Apocalypse Confidential, which is a web magazine of edgy extrapolations, fringe fascinations, occult obsessions, risky ruminations, and aberrant associations. Although I should point out that we're no longer just a web magazine. In fact, we've got our first book coming out in a couple of months. Yeah. Um, our first hard copy. It's called The Book of by Frank Peak. So look out for that. Awesome. Yeah, I saw that. And I was I was I was definitely like, oh, that's something that definitely interests me. So that that book is it is it going to be it's it's, it's fiction, right? Or is it not? Yeah, it's a novel. Okay, so that's what I thought, but I just want to make sure. So definitely be checking out. I, I am hip to to Apocalypse Confidential. Um, obviously, I've, I've had on Jacob on the podcast before, Jacob Everett, um, a.k.a. Blower guys, for those who don't know. I mean, shout out to the uh, RIP to the Elroy boys. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, I wanted to have you on to talk about this book uh, because, well, I have a kind of, this is kind of like in my sort of like, I don't know if you want to call it in my sort of sweet spot in terms of like my own sort of reading. Um, I tend to read a lot of like hard boiled stuff. Would you, first of all, would you classify this as hard boiled? Yeah, I definitely would. Okay. That's what I thought. I just want to make sure <laughs> like I'm here calling it hard boiled. And Max is like, I don't I didn't write this as hard boiled. I'm pretty sure you did. Uh, but yeah, so I gave it a read and, and one of the things and I, to just let people sort of know the book is, is kind of, it tracks, it, it does the similar thing that like a lot of hard boiled novels do, which is and, and you're definitely operating with a certain kind of uh, templates, not the right word, because I feel like template is like reductive. Uh, but there are a certain sort of like. There's a certain shape that this type of story has. And when people it's just like any genre, right, any, any genre, any subgenre, when you're writing in that genre, um, there are certain expectations that are sort of like inherent to that genre right and they sort of like the readers who read that specific kind of book are already kind of primed by the fact that of these sort of like uh similar sort of setup right that these that these stories tend to have um and god is a killer is one of is one of those books where it does track three different i would say three main three main characters now there's other characters throughout the book that are that are all related but the three main characters are uh, I believe it's MacDougal. Am I saying that right? MacDougal? Yeah, MacDougal. Yeah. MacDougal. MacDougal, who basically uh, is kind of the star of this book, in my opinion. Uh, <laughs> um, he's uh, like, uh, well, he's a cult leader, um, a religious cult leader. Um, actually, uh, I believe the cult's name is the Eternal the Eternal Nations, correct? Yeah, the Eternal, Eternal Nations Nation. in the Wilderness of New England. In the Wilderness of New the England. The full right? title. Yeah, yeah, so so and and, and tracks McDougal, who who's recently uh, got out of prison, and we meet in the, at the start of the book, and we sort of get to know who he is a little bit more. I mean, one of the interesting aspects is when you when we're introduced to him, is that he has a sort of acolyte, uh, uh, a guy who we discover is also 
a former uh, inmate uh, who he, I guess he was his prison uh, celly. And, uh, but this guy was a skinhead. Um, and you get to sort of quickly discover, uh, and I like the way this the story sort of plays everything out. Cause it doesn't, it doesn't really spoon feed the, the reader. It kind of gives you, you know, just enough information to keep you sort of like wanting to know, okay, like what, what's next. Okay. I'm gonna find out more. So you, you, but you quickly understand that, uh, uh, that McDougall is a dangerous guy, um, because McDougall, uh, is not only a, uh, let's say a God fearing man. He's also sort of one of those kind of uh, silver tongued sort of uh, men who uses his religious beliefs uh, to his own advantage. You know what I mean? Where he, he will constantly justify anything that he's doing as, you know, um, the will of God or, you know what I mean? He's one of those kind of characters. Uh, and we do uh, sort of get the sense of that very, like I said, very quickly because we are introduced to this other character called Touchdown, and uh, Touchdown, who we discover is out in the middle of nowhere, um, sleeping in a tent. Um, who he's been shot. <laughs> he's sleeping in a tent. Um, he has six thousand dollars under a blanket and a gun. Um, and you're like, what the hell's going on? Um, and he runs into, uh, unfortunately for him, he runs into McDougal and his uh, his acolyte, <laughs> and he gets killed. Um, and then sort of the story jumps off at that point, and then we we meet the other another the second character, uh, Sarah or Sarah uh, was it Von Bommel? Von Bommel's her name. Yeah, Van really? Bommel. And Sarah, uh, she she's the owner of a well, Loon Hill, right, where she lives in this mansion. I believe the mansion is called Causeway, but it, I guess it, at some point in the story you discover that it's the uh, Eternal Mansion um, because uh, she she used to be part of sort of McDougal's cult, for for lack of a better word. Um, and she's there pretty much all by herself, uh, except for a young boy named Timmy, who she's been taken and taken care of. Now, I do have a question about Timmy before I say a little bit more, because um, when I was reading this book, and like I said, it's fresh on my mind because I just read it again. Um, Timmy. Now, would you say that Timmy was uh, like, I get the sense that Timmy is sort of it's never explicitly stated in the book, but Timmy's like 18 years old, but he has sort of like the mind of a child. Right. Or like the mind of someone who is like never. And part of that could be he was raised in a cult. Right. But another part, another aspect of that is, is, um, I mean, another aspect that as he could be sort of like on the spectrum, I'm not quite certain. I mean, <laughs> uh, but I kind of got that sense, but also I, I, I wondered, and this is a question I have for you and I do, I'm not going to spoil this book. I swear to God, cause people should read it. It's out now, go read it and we won't spoil it too much, but, uh, it was never, it's never explicitly stated correct me if I'm wrong, that, uh, who Timmy's actual mother is, or is it, or was it Elena? No, his actual mother uh, abandoned him. He was okay. brought in. It's, it's kind of like a foundling to the nation. Okay. Back when okay. McDougal was still running it. And, you know, people would come to them. So this couple came with their young baby and their intention the whole time had just been to abandon it. You know, mm. they didn't want to take care of Timmy anymore. So they showed up for a few days, you know, kind of like pretended to buy into it. And then one morning they just left. Yeah. And, and Timmy and, was still there and he was raised by the cult. Okay. So it's just straight up. It's just straight up. That's the case because I was, as I was reading it, I was wondering, I'm like, is that really the case? Or is it really like one of these other, other members? And he's sort of kind of like the, but no, he's, he's literally just a kid who was abandoned. Um, now Timmy's another, he plays a role in that because he's the connection really between, um, I mean, he's not the direct connection, but he kind of serves as a connection between Sarah and McDougal because, you know, obviously 
he was he was part of the cult before before McDougal gets arrested, which we discovered McDougal got arrested for selling guns, right? Um, uh, but he was part of the cult and sort of like remembers McDougal as the leader of the cult. So when McDougal returns, now he you know he 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 sees Timmy, but Timmy's now grown because he was a, he was a child when he got locked up, but he's able to sort of like use some some of that sort of again that cult leader sort of. Uh, I don't know. He's a snake oil salesman, as all religious people kind of tend to be, uh, you know, but he's able to sort of like manipulate Timmy in a lot of ways. Um, and Sarah is sort of the protector and she's really looking out for Timmy and she has taken on that mother role. Um, and 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 we also get introduced to a, a third character who is Fitzroy and Fitzroy is is kind of like a how I would describe sort of a a Jim Thompson style lawman in a way. <laughs> would you agree with that? Would you? Yeah, would you... very much so. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Pop 1280 is the book that really mm-hmm. made me decide to write crime fiction. Mm-hmm. You know, it had that kind of impact on me. And of course, you know, that's Jim Thompson's background anyway. You know, his dad was a corrupt County sheriff and yeah. uh, you know, Lou Ford and the killer inside me is the same. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, that's a big kind of archetypal character that Thompson deals with. And, uh, you know, He's a big influence on me, and I just kind of threw him in the book. Yeah, so one of the main characters. Yeah, so he's this lawman, and and he's definitely, he's definitely corrupt. But in that, in like like we said, in that Jim Thompson kind of way, where where Fitzroy is sort of ju- his justifications for the things he does in his own mind is sort of like, well, I'm doing this in order to sort of control, uh, you know, uh, he would rather be in. Um, and this is just my take on it. I think that Fitzroy is the type of character who would rather he would rather be in control of what's going on in terms of uh, the cr- of crime in in his county uh, than outside forces. So therefore, in his own way, he you know, he's he's making sure, you know, he's the one who who has these guys making meth. You know what I mean? He's the one who's sort of in charge. He's he's in cahoots with the, with this biker gang, the Stone Men. Um, and he's it's very interesting because one of the first books i've talked about uh on my podcast uh was a book that had a a similar and again like i said before operating in the same sort of space a a similar kind of uh kind of character when it came to a corrupt sort of uh, police officer slash sheriff sheriff guy um and and that was peckerwood uh which i i had i spoke with its author uh jedediah airs about uh and again like it comes back to what I was saying, which is like, I clearly like these kind of stories. <laughs> like I clearly am. I clearly, this is cause I'm doing like yet another one. Uh, but there's something about sort of uh, that moral ambiguity. Now those three characters uh, that, that was also a book that was divided in that similar kind of way where you had, you know, different sort of characters, you know what I'm saying? Diced up and we sort of followed their POVs until everyone sort of, not only interacted, but stories sort of aligned and it all comes to a head at the very end, um, which does happen in its own way in uh, in your book. Uh, but I did notice uh, a thing about sort of, as I was saying before, the moral ambiguity um, that God, at a, God as a killer has. And obviously you said like Jim Thompson sort of has is a, as an influence, you've cited as an influence. And it's something that appeals to me just in the types of stories that I like, where these are the type of stories and God, God is a killer is specifically the type of story that operates in this sort of moral gray area, right? Where like every character that you see, um, aside from like maybe Timmy, um, there's something about them that is like, 
not necessarily uh what's the word like not necessarily there's aspects to each character that you that you that you have in your story that are that people would probably view as character uh not only character defects but also sort of like morally kind of questionable uh aspects to who they are um would you agree with that, Max? Or am I just? Uh... Yeah, I would agree with that. I think that you're you're right about that, and you're certainly right about Timmy because mm-hmm. even in the most cynical, hard-boiled crime story, there has to be some kind of innocence, or else yeah. it doesn't work. It just if bad people are just doing bad things to each other, it gets boring very quickly. Right, right. And so that was in the construction of the novel. That was his role as a character. Mm-hmm. I mean, as for the other ones, um, you know, I mean, I am drawn to you know morally ambiguous characters. That's why mm-hmm. I'm drawn to noir. And that informs my approach to literature as a whole. I mean, you, going back to the start of you know Western literature, if you look at Homer and the Odyssey and the Iliad, I mean, the Odyssey is much more of a straightforward adventure story, you know, where the hero is escaping from danger, trying to get home. Uh, whereas with the Iliad, you have a war. You know, you have you know maybe it was a bad thing that the Trojans took Helen out of Sparta and Menelaus's home, but you know Hector is very noble, you know, very valiant character, even though he's he's part of the Trojans. And some of the Greek characters are not very appealing you know menelaus is kind of you know a meathead and uh you know his brother agamemnon is not very pleasant to be around you know he thinks very highly of himself he's always going on power trips so it, it's kind of gray there's more moral ambiguity to it and to me that just makes it a more engaging story or at least the one that engages me more so right. that's i'd say that's really my approach to literature and you know film and you know culture in general you know that's the sort of thing that i'm drawn to yeah i would have to I would have to agree with you on that for for my own sort of taste as well. There's something that is very uh, interesting about sort of not having moral moral morally ambiguous characters uh, in stories simply for the fact that they sort of like pose questions inherently, right? Because they do things and they justify things to themselves, um, and you can kind of see their through their perspective, but not too much. Uh, and I'm I'm going to ask you a little bit about that because. I think that was a specific sort of stylistic choice that you made because you're the way you wrote uh, this book, it's very like stripped down, right? It's very like, kind of like you do got, it's not, it's like, it's a third person, but it's not like third person, like super close. You know what I mean? Where it's like you're inside every moment. Like you're, you know, cause some got some writers will get really into the head of the character where it's like, you're, you're literally, uh, reading the thoughts that are happening like as the story plays out and you're sort of a little bit it's distance it's got a little bit of a distance to it um one because i'm all over the place max as if if you don't know uh one can you speak a little bit on your your decision to go that way because i do like that um i feel like again it's when it comes to like writers and sort of style choices um i'm always sort of interested in sort of reasonings behind why stories are told certain ways what was sort of like your thinking behind sort of telling it in that sort of like spare kind of like not going too far into sort of like the internal sort of aspects of the characters minds but sort of keeping a certain kind of distance my favorite novelist is Dostoevsky, and he works a lot in uh, close third person crime and punishment uh, yeah yeah that's you know that's yeah. like one of his trademarks one of his uh, his innovations you know what he's known for as a novelist but my approach is much more classically hard-boiled and you know that for me writing crime fiction starts with dashiell hammett paul kane 
um, all the black mask guys. And, uh, you know, it's, it's like objective third person narration where you're not really going into the feelings or the thoughts of the characters too much. Mm -hmm. So subtext is very important for me. Yeah. You know, I'm not, I'm not telling you a lot. I have to try to show you everything. And that's one of the reasons why the book is short. I mean, it's very condensed and it's almost all action Yeah. Uh, because it's either characters doing things, whether that's, you know, shooting someone or talking because dialogue is also a form of action. It's something that a character will use to try to get something that they want out of somebody else. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I have a tendency to sort of do that, but I feel like a lot of that, some of it is, some of it for me personally is, is, a sensibility, but also kind of, and it's a, it's a direct choice, but also it's sort of like a muscle that I've learned from, from writing scripts for so long, like, because I've been so long, because I write screenplays and get, you know, get money to do that, like, and been doing it for a significant amount of time. Uh, that sort of instinct as a writer now, whenever I do prose is like, I always have to remind myself uh, to sort of like, uh, when I'm in specifically when I'm writing prose, I always have to remind myself, hey, you know, you can, <laughs> you know, you can pop in for a second. You don't have to like, you know what I mean? And I'm like, oh, yeah, I can. Um, so it's like definitely a sensibility that I, I I tend to like lean towards in terms of like my own when I'm reading other people's work. I'm very interested in sort of like. Things that are that are sort of able to sort of get across certain things, like you said, subtextually is an important thing, right? Where, where, where you're, what's, what's, what's not, what is what the character's not saying that's saying, actually saying everything. Um, and I'm very interested in sort of stories or storytellers who can sort of do a lot on the page without dedicating a lot of words to doing it. You know what I mean? Or dedicating as, as few words as possible. It's, it always feels like a magic trick. You know what I mean? Where it's like, oh, how do they get all of that across without like, going through you know this dense sort of prose and text on the page uh while, while i do have my fair share of uh writers who write that way that i appreciate i do have a tendency to lean towards stuff that is more kind of in this vein that is sort of kind of stripped down uh is that sort of more of a naturalistic way that you write or is that sort of something that you sort of like have to uh when you sit down to write is that something that you kind of have to like uh go do the Elroy thing where I'm like, you know, the whole story about him sort of having to sort of rewrite, uh, what was it like American tabloid? And he just started crossing words out. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, is it more of a thing of like, that's in the, the redraft or the rewriting or is that the sort of kind of like I'm being spare in the, in the initial draft. If that makes I sense. want it to be <laughs> as spare and, and compressed as possible. I mean, <clears throat> it suits the genre very well. Mm -hmm. And I think it's also just kind of my personality, you know, like I've, I live in Boston. I'm, I'm very much an East Coaster. You know, I'm kind of buttoned up. I'm not telling you anything kind of deal. And I think that must carry over into writing fiction, because as soon as I started writing long form narratives, uh, you know, before that, I had been writing short stories that were, you know, probably more experimental, you know, not as plot or character driven. Mm -hmm. But once I started writing novels, I found that that was, you know, for better or worse, my voice, you know, it's very stripped down, very hard boiled. Mm -hmm. um as few words as, as possible so yeah i mean that it is something that comes naturally to me and that's mm -hmm. one of the reasons why i leaned into noir and hard-boiled fiction so much because it was just it seemed perfect for me you know i could write in a way that did feel natural to me right. and that used the most of whatever talent that i had as a writer yeah i think i think that's that's an interesting thing that you said there because i do think that 
it's a wise decision to always lean towards sort of like whatever your naturalistic sort of strengths are. Uh, and I see, I don't think a lot of people do that. <laughs> like, like, I think, I think there's plenty of, plenty of us that kind of do that, but I, I, I know you, you probably have seen this type of thing before yourself, uh, which is like, there's, a, I've known plenty of writers who have tried to sort of like graft on a style that wasn't theirs. And it, it not only, I mean, we all, we all grab from influences. We all sort of are influenced by people and sort of like give our sort of like riff on this kind of writing. Like everyone does that, but usually, uh, the ones that sort of like when you sort of form your own voice and you sort of form your own sort of identity as a writer, like it's usually the the, the artists that are inspiring you that are, are influencing you. Um, the reason they are doing those things is because there's some a similar sort of uh, there's a similar kind of way that they write that is appealing to you because it mirrors sort of your own sort of like style, right? Or your own sort of style that you're trying to discover. You're kind of you're like I like that, so I'm trying to get that out. But then there's a lot of people who sort of like they just like it. This style is not for you, but like you're doing it anyways. You know what I mean? Where it's like you're like purpley, your prose is really purple. It's like you shouldn't, you should probably not do that. Um, and it's just an interesting thing that I see. I see that a lot, weirdly, in screenwriting a lot. Where I've, I, I, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with um, Walter Hill. I'm pretty sure you're familiar with Walter Hill. Yeah, I know Walter. Yeah, yeah. So Walter Hill, have you ever read a Walter, a Walter Hill script? No, I've, I've seen so his movies, Wal but I haven't read Yeah, script. so Walter Hill has this very uh, specific style, right, that influenced a lot of people. It's it's a haiku style. Like, one of the, uh, his script for Drivers written like this, um, his script, one, the one that's really crazy is his script for the movie Hard Times, the movie that stars uh, Charles Bronson, where he's like a, a boxcar hobo who get, who's like a fighter. Like, uh, well, well, his script, if you read the script for Hard Times, it's like literally reading like, a haiku in story form where like it's just like like if you saw like i'm trying to think of like a, a prose comparative sort of like sam pink does the sort of line breaks but like just imagine like the line breaks in the script but it's like i'm trying to i'm trying to describe it like it's just it's literally just there's no fat whatsoever on the script at all it's just like he he looks he dashes it's like the whole thing it's like it's almost like reading like you're like it looks like a stanza, like, you know what I'm saying? When you're reading a poet. Well, well, that style is like single sentence, like spacing between everything. Like it's influenced a lot of people. The alien script was written like that. The one that uh, Walter Hill wrote, rewrote. He rewrote the O'Bannon script uh, with, uh, I think it was uh, Geiler. Walter Hill and Geiler, they like got together and they rewrote the alien script. And that's what got, got, got it going. But if you read even that script, it has that style. Like he's known for that style. And I've watched writers sort of like try to take that Walter Hill style and just write that way. Cause they thought it was cool. But then I'm looking at their story and I'm like, this has absolutely like this style does not go with the type of story that you're writing. Like, you know what I mean? Even though scripts are this weird thing that like, it's, it's an internal document that no one ever sees. So it's kind of like, you're like spending all this, like that's why it's always maddening. Like people like labor over like the way it reads sort of sometimes. Cause you're like, yeah. Um, no one's actually going to read this except for like the people that are behind the scenes. So it's kind of weird that like, you're like getting a little bit overly obsessive about the way it reads and why you're doing things on the page. I mean, I'm guilty of this as I say that, but still uh, the reason I bring that up is because uh, I do see people sort of like grabbing very specific kind of style uh, of styles of writing 
and like trying to sort of jam it into a fucking it's like jamming the uh, 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 a square into a fucking you know a a round peg you know a round peg into a square whatever whatever the fucking <laughs> whatever the assembly is that i'm trying to say um it where it just doesn't quite fit right um so it, this is my way of having a a, a a a long tangent about writing styles that is just all over the place max um but <laughs> no it sounds uh, good to me well i want to read those walter hill scripts now because mm -hmm. i love white space yeah, um, you know, it's something that I, that I it's something that I look at, you know, at my work at my work as I'm writing, mm -hmm. um, you know, there's something that in general, you know, you can tell a lot about narrative flow just by looking at how the words are placed on a page, uh, what yeah. you're reading, what type of literature it is. But I would just say in general that, I mean, if you want to be a writer, it's important to write because you're finding out who you are as a writer. And that's something that took me, you know, a number of years to really find out. And, you know, once I did, it was like full speed ahead. This is what I'm doing. Uh, but it did take a while and, you know, a lot of kind of false starts and missteps before I ended up, you know, being this hard boiled crime novelist. Yeah. Um, as I'm, I'm literally at the same time talking to you, I'm trying to pull up uh, this Walter, one of these Walter Hill scripts, just so I can like read to you. I should actually do screen share. I can actually read to you the sort of style that I'm talking about because it is what it's very white. It's white space. Like it's a lot of white space. Like it's, it's, it's pretty, uh, it's impressive, but it's sort of kind of like hard times is the one that like, again, I've already said is the real kind of, uh, ex exaggerated example of the style that I'm talking about. Um, let me see here if I can pull it up here. Hard times. Well, it just seems counterproductive to mimic the style of a script because the script is just one ingredient of the film. Yeah, yeah right. But you, you know, know what? You know what? It, it is counterproductive. But as you as you probably uh, know, Hollywood is very much about tracing trends. And and the people that are in Hollywood specifically are very like they're clout chasers. You know, like let's just be real. It's a it's a clout chaser industry. It's 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 built on like sort of <laughs> it's built on people who who have a tendency to sort of, you know, do things just because they feel you know, it's going to further them, you know, uh, further their career. It's the new hip thing. And it's going to make them the next Jordan Peele or who name insert the uh, popular filmmaker or screenwriter, actor, etc. Like it's I mean, I feel like uh, to a lesser degree, I don't know if I don't know, maybe not. I was going to say to a lesser degree. I feel like you see that in the literary world. But there's a lot of that, too. In the literary world i mean uh i don't know if you agree with me or not on that but i've seen my fair share of it uh when it comes to sort of people trying to like be published at the people who are published at the big or one of the big five are trying to or have aspirations to it seems to sort of like draw in similar sort of types of of personalities would you would you say or not I'm, <laughs> yeah, I don't talk that much about it, but yeah, I certainly mm -hmm. agree. I know exactly what you're talking about. And uh, I love the episode that you did with Jacob about Blonde, because both of you really got to talk about Hollywood. Um, you know, the nature of it, the clout chasing of it, and the exploitation. So that was a great one to listen to for me. Oh, I'm glad you were able to, to listen to that one. That's a, uh, yeah, I mean, again, Blonde is a perfect, a perfect example of something that, like, I think, and I talked about that with Jacob, uh, uh, on that on that episode was that like blonde to me is a movie that like we saw again the oscars are a joke i've already i've already you know i've said my piece on that i feel like i feel like my listeners will probably be like ryan don't start with the oscars again uh so i won't i'll 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 spare everyone that but i will say um that the oscars you know um 
they happened and uh blonde uh was wasn't really recognized and uh i feel like uh time will uh sort of be kinder to that movie um than than it's being right now currently where i feel like it's just completely been overlooked uh and it's been one of those movies like that is legitimately one of the best movies that came out in 2022 and you wouldn't be able to tell based on sort of uh the way uh it's talked about or the way it's not being talked about at all so yeah uh go watch blonde again uh, or, and, and go listen to that episode with uh jacob if you haven't that uh max mentioned <laughs> Um, I do want to ask you as I continue to try to find this stupid Walter Hill script. Uh, I heard you say that you, uh, and this is interesting because a lot of, I feel like a lot of people don't, uh, don't necessarily, maybe, maybe not, maybe, maybe writers do this. I don't know, but I know I do this, but I heard you mention that you say you'd like to read certain books that you like three times. Um, so are you currently reading a book? for your uh that you're doing that you're reading th three times and if so what's that book and uh what's your reasonings behind doing it because i know what my reasonings are when i do something like that but uh could you expand on that max and tell me why why do you like to read books uh not once not twice but three times <laughs> yeah well, I'm, I'm going through a number of books right now and rereading mm -hmm. them i mean they're all books that i've read before and they're all books that influenced me and I decided that I would go i mean they're all noir hard-boiled crime novels and i decided that i would go back because the book that I'm writing now, I don't want it to be quite as distant, clinical, kind of hard-boiled, objective style as God as a Killer was. I want to go a bit more inside the characters. So I thought, well, maybe I'll check in with these books and, uh, you know, see if I can pick up something. So that was, uh, I started with Get Carter by Ted Lewis, uh, Friends of Eddie Coyle, you know, the Boston crime yeah, class. Yeah, I've read that book probably, I don't <laughs> know how many times. I read Friends yeah. of Eddie Coyle every year. Uh, yeah, I think that when I finally I did read that three times recently, and uh, I think it was probably the eighth time in total that I probably read it somewhere around there. So I've read uh, I've reread Red Harvest again twice. So I got to do that once more. Yeah. And yeah. then, uh, yep. And then from there, I go on to books that I mean, maybe are not quite as well known, even among crime novelists. I've got Dead City by Shane Stevens. This is an early 70s gangster novel. Mm. And then uh, George Simenon's Dead Snow, which is a very interesting a hardboiled gangster novel because it does go a lot into the character's uh, psychology. So I think, you know, that's one of my favorites and that's one that I'm going to enjoy revisiting hopefully, you know, picking up something from it. Yeah. I mean, that, that one specifically, that Simonon, I mean, Simonon's a blind spot for me. I have, I've only read like two of his books, uh, but Simonon's a fascinating writer to me. Like just, just because I know sort of like I've heard the stories about sort of, you know, how he wrote and like, how he would do these 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 books in this very short amount of time or how I think uh, the story one of the stories was like he would like have his wife or something like lock him in the in the room or something like that and like just like and it was like he would he would bang these novels out these quick sort of like barn burners that are just like he would do them in such a compressed amount of time um and there's something yeah it was like that. he was almost like a like an f1 driver or something and he yeah. was you know, constantly, <laughs> you know like sweating in his seat and he was constantly having to you know get checked out by the doctor to make sure his heart was okay or stuff like that. At least that's what he used to say in interviews. Yeah. 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 He was a, a monster of energy. I mean, unbelievably prolific. Mm. So I think, I mean, that kind of makes him difficult to get into in a way that you don't really know where to start. And plus he had, he wrote two different types of novels. He's got the noir novels, um, you know, the kind of the, what he called the hard novels. And then he's got the, uh, the Maygrave series, you know, which was dozens and dozens of books. And those are the ones that, um, 
you know, made him all of his money and got him all of his sales. It wasn't the noir stuff. Okay. Yeah. So Simeon is one of those guys, like you said, trying to share this screen with you. Let me know if you can see this. <laughs> oh yeah, I can see it. No, this looks great. Yeah. So as you can see, why, why can't I see it? Which is, which is weird. Okay. As you can see, like, this is like this, the most spare where it starts with like train passing slowly into a switching yard, Cheney standing in an open box car, gravel road, old pickup truck stopped waiting as the train slides by two children in the rear of the truck. One of them, a 10 year old boy stands and watches the train. He sees Cheney, their eyes holding on one another. Like this is like the whole script. Like, and, and even, but what, where it gets really cool, where it gets really cool is the action because this is a, a script about a guy who like does bare knuckle boxing. Uh, but just when you see the way he incorporates this style into the action, it's it's perfect. But like even this right here on page two, industrial siding, smokestacks, old brick, Cheney moving by stationary boss cars, chewing a mat stick, black duffel bag over one shoulder, diner, Chasey enters, waitress with a stained apron, Cheney stands at the Like I've seen people try to mimic this style and it was the worst shit I've ever seen. I'm like, why are you doing this? Like, you know what I mean? But this is the most extreme case. Of, of that sort of Walter Hill style. Like, as you, I mean, I have a whole bunch of these right here. Let's see. Uh, I'll bring another one up just to show you that's like a little bit more, like Driver's not as extreme, for example. Like Driver is one of those scripts that has that style, but it's not like, it's not like he's still kind of like, okay, I'm going to give you a little bit more words. But as you can see, like it even starts with fade in city, the city day, late afternoon, cloaked in orange brown, freeway, line off, Line on line of automobiles, insects on a slow march. And then as you can see right here, sort of not even the spacing. It's just like hotel corridor day, uh, hotel corridor day, an elevator door opens. The connection steps out. A tall young woman with slick back hair looks at the door numbers as she comes by down the hallway, stops at 2502, presses the buzzer. After a moment, the door swings open. Then connect. Like this is like a, like this is a style that like, it could be tedious, but in, in certain hands, it's not like in his hands. It's not because when you get through all the way through the end of the script, you realize like, oh, like I just sped through this. And like the dialogue is sort of clipped. The dialogue is very hard boiled in nature. I mean, I'm pretty sure you've seen the driver before. So so again, like when I talk about style, and as you can see, white on the page, a lot of white on the page. Walter Hill is, is sort of like the first and I'll stop sharing that. Uh, but Walter Hill is like the first screenwriter to sort of kind of have that sort of style like in and in sort of it became sort of like within sort of screenwriting circles which are very like i get it they're like that's a very like esoteric group of people most people don't read scripts most people you couldn't pay them to read a script most people wouldn't read a script if you held a gun to their head but um <laughs> people that want to do screenwriting or screenwriters do read scripts and like obviously the ones that are uh not completely horrible or don't completely bore your mind out uh tend to get a lot of attention and so walter hill's scripts in that style specifically got a lot of attention but again like it's even you see it in uh sort of the trend chasing and when it comes to like sort of uh when it comes to publishing and books like for example we i know that you're probably aware of the sort of auto uh auto fiction has become sort of like a thing that is like I'm tired of it. I'm tired of seeing autofiction. I don't know how are you, where it became really popular, right? It became something that like all of a sudden you had all of these people sort of writing these autofiction novels uh, because I guess a few of them got some notoriety, maybe got a got a, a nice book deal or something. So autofiction became the new sort of in vogue thing for writers to sort of try and uh, get in the game with. Um, 
and you see a lot of people like using that sort of autofiction style and and completely like butchering it. Um, it, it yeah, so so style is is an obsession of mine in terms of like I used to be obsessed with process uh, when I was a younger writer. I, I I could care less about process now. Process is just process. Like whatever. Like your process can look it's personal, right? It's like, however, no, there's no sort of like one size fits all. It's like, as long as, as long as at the end of the day, you, you finish with a, a manuscript or a finished sort of story. Um, it doesn't matter how you got there. You got there. Right. Um, but, but style is still something that I'm just kind of like, I don't know. Like I, I, I'm, I, sometimes i I vacillate between like thinking style is everything. And then thinking like style is just, uh, a, a way to distract where, where, where are you in terms of your own sort of opinion on like style um, when it comes to like writing? Damn, this is a really nerdy podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, a, it's a great question for me. I mean, style and content are inseparable. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, and what I do is, is kind of the opposite of auto fiction because it's very character driven, very plot driven. And none of the characters are me. I mean, there's, right. there's an element of me in them. And that's the kernel that I'm kind of working with, but they're not me. You know, I'm not McDougal. I'm not Timmy. I'm not any of these characters. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that with autofiction, I mean, it's good for cross promotion because you can use the book to promote your persona and you can <laughs> right, use right, your right. persona to promote the book. So mm -hmm. it's just like, it's like a, like almost like a marketing thing. If you want to become, you know, an e-celeb or yeah, you know, I think that's, I on, think... The, on the literary scene. Yeah. That kind yeah, of thing, yeah, but yeah. that's certainly not what I do. Yeah. I think, I think you do, you hit the nail on the head with that because I do think that it, that it is one of those things where it's like you're you're inserting yourself into the story literally. So it's like one. It is a very sort of narcissistic kind of uh, choice to make as a writer, um, which I don't feel like writers need much of that. Like, like, like I feel oh, like encouragement. I, yeah, I don't think writers yeah. need to be encouraged <laughs> to be more narcissistic. I mean, it yeah. is, you know. So it's like one of those things where it's like eh, maybe you shouldn't adopt this style. Most most people, uh, but. Uh, but it is, it's interesting that you say like that you don't sort of insert yourself, but I do feel like that is part of the voice, which is your voice is that of an antisocial writer. <laughs> so you have like the antisocial style, which is like kind of like I'm like everything that I, you need to say about Max, uh, which I know Max Thrax is not your actual name. Um, uh, and we could talk about sort of the origins of Max Thrax's name, which we, we should. But, uh, but I can tell that like that is part of the voice right part of the voice yeah. of your voice is like you are removed you are distanced and that's sort of in the characters are like you know what i mean and it becomes part of the overall tonality of of the piece which is like oh this is like everyone is sort of like not wanting to reveal themselves or they're, they're guarded and they're guarded for a reason you know what i'm saying because there's things going on that you have to read between the lines like again like you said subtext so uh yeah would you say that would you agree with that? Or would you say, I don't, I don't fucking know. I never really thought about it. <laughs> no, I would agree with that. I think again, part of that is just my personality. You know, I'm not, I'm not always the most expressive person. I am, I am kind of a solitary writer. Um, and I think part of my approach comes from uh, JG Ballard was a big influence on me, especially yeah, I, back I, I, when I was writing more experimental stuff. Yeah. And I mean, if you read crash, I mean, part of the impact of that book is him, describing all this bizarre behavior in very clinical terms like it's nothing to him right you know and that that can work really well with transgressive fiction um yeah. and that's it's kind of also what i do as a crime writer it's interesting because i'm a big i'm a big jg ballard fan too um i have a whole bunch of his books on my shelf but uh it's interesting that you write in crime i don't think 
I don't know. I always say that there's an overlap in crime and horror a lot. I feel like I feel like there is, but like Ballard isn't really either of those things. But I do feel like uh, it's interesting that you cite him as someone who's an influence because I do feel like Ballard. I, I read a lot of things that are Ballardian, like that are nowadays that are. I always wonder, like, does the writer actually know that it's Ballardian? You know what I'm saying? Because he's one of those yeah. influences that like influence others who the, who 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 influence others so it's like you don't really have you can't some people probably don't even trace the 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 Ballardian aspects to their fiction or the prose or whatever because the writer that they were influenced by was influenced by Ballard you know what I mean but they didn't they're they weren't aware of it um but Ballard is definitely someone who you do he does have a crash specifically is one of those novels uh or he does have this weird sort of removed kind of uh view you know um of, of, of or he's just presenting I think um High Rise, which I'm going back through. Um, I, I read 12 books at once, so whatever. But, but fucking uh, High Rise kind of has elements of that as well, where he's almost like just sort of, you know, obviously it opens with the guy eating the dog thing. It's like very just yeah. like almost like almost sterile. You know what I mean? Like a sterile sort of like observation of, of things happening in front of him in a way that's so like detached in moments that like almost adds to sort of the way the way the reader sort of experiences because it's almost like it's more shocking or more has more of an impact because he's not sort of like doing all the extra shit like to to be like you know like there's certain writers who are like and screenwriting is really bad about this uh where it's like if something happens on the page they go out of their way to be like and a fucking bomb blew up all caps 17 exclamation points underlines boom bam boom like it's like all right bro okay i get it like you don't have to do <laughs> like it would probably just work if you were just sort of like you know like presented it you know i, I feel like ballard is good at that like he's just sort of kind of uh you know he's he's good at a lot of things but he's a very interesting uh writer in general but um yeah this is interesting uh that you you cited ballard he's come up a lot lately i feel like he's one of those one of those writers who who's were still sort of I think he I think culturally he he's sort of having an an, an influence now and a, and I mean culturally in terms of like the culture of I don't know if you want to call it that maybe it's not the right word but culturally when I, when I mean I mean like writer culture if that is is that even a thing I don't know <laughs> but you know like in the world of writing contemporary writing now I feel like Ballard has become uh more uh I don't know maybe is popular the right word maybe i don't know i just feel like there's been a resurgence of like ballard appreciation um yeah i mean his his work has an enduring appeal and it's it's not a surprise that he you know became his own adjective yeah right. i think it's interesting when you look back at science fiction in the 60s because you know back then the big names were uh, writers like asimov mm -hmm. you know robert heinlein and then ballard and uh you know philip k dick were kind of like the weirdo yeah, you know, underground yeah. guys. But now if you look at who's really influencing science fiction writers, I mean, it's, you know, it's Ballard and then, uh, you know, certainly Philip K. Dick. I mean, those are the yeah. ones who ended up having this massive influence, not yeah. just on literature, but you know, pop culture in general. Yeah. And it's interesting because because uh, Philip K. Dick is interesting for a lot of reasons, because like I feel like uh, to like the average sort of like person or normie type i guess i mean i hate i hate the norm normie is one, one of those phrases that gets used too much now but 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 to like the average sort of like i don't know the lay person or sort of like or just your casual reader you know there's probably people know the name philip k dick right and they kind of associate philip k dick with sort of like 
you know, science fiction, but like stuff like War of the Worlds or whatever, you know what I mean? Stuff like around in that vein, right? Where it's like sort of like your, you know, your standard sort of boilerplate style fiction. But like Philip K. Dick was wrote some weird shit. Like, you know what I mean? Like, like there's some novels that you're like, yo, he is this is weird. And he was like in his life, it was very, you know, uh, he just was a, a guy who was going through a lot of shit. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, like when you read into his story and how, you know, like he was a guy, you know, there's a reason why there's always you know shit weird wife shit in all of his uh all of right. his books because well, Ballas, yeah Ballas yeah. certainly has some auto fictional right. his, his, elements his, yeah his, his wife died and he had to you know raise his daughters you know as a single father you know like like these writers like who have who have had these sort of like i don't know cultural impact that 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 echoes way beyond sort of their era into the sort of newer newer eras uh i feel like there's a casual sort of uh, knowledge of them in the sort of, you know, broader conscious or collective conscious. But like when you really, I don't think like people really have in, I mean, and I mean this in general, like, I don't feel like people really done true deep dives into who these people were because if they, if they did, they would see like, like they were not only doing shit that was very transgressive and very sort of cutting edge, but also sort of things that aren't sort of easily palatable. You know what I mean? Like, um, Weirdly enough, even though they would be probably viewed as palatable writers, right? But I, I feel like, I feel like a lot of their stuff, you know, it's just it's really not, you know what I mean? It's not, and I feel like I like that. I like that aspect of a writer who, like, I'm always worried about like how, how something comes off, right? As, as how it reads, but like, there's something about like getting to a point as a writer where you're kind of like, you know what? No, fuck that. Like, it's gonna read this way, and you're just gonna have to. You're just gonna have to in, be challenged by the way this is. Uh, do you like challenging reads, Max, or no? <laughs> <laughs> well, it depends. It depends on what you mean. And I think, yeah, for me, the most challenging reads that I've had weren't necessarily in terms of the technical difficulty of reading the book, but emotionally. Yeah. You know, yeah. something can be difficult to read, difficult to handle. I mean, those were the reads that stuck with me. And you know, when I when I saw the style that some of them were written in, I mean. I knew that I didn't have to try to write like James Joyce or anything mm -hmm. like that to try to write something that, you know, was good or had some kind of impact. I could just keep mm -hmm. it spare, you know, play, try to play to my strengths and uh, do it that way. Yeah. Um, Joyce is weird. Cause like, I still don't kind of know if I'm ever going to, uh, I don't know if I'm ever going to try. You know, it's, 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 it's not the 20th century anymore. You don't have to read Joyce. It's yeah. 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 It's one of those things where I'm like, so, I'm always yeah. like, should I go <laughs> ahead and like try and like read Dubliners and like, or like go through like all of the you know the big Joyce titles that are like and I'm like mm, I don't know I've got a lot of stuff to what I am in my to read like I'm not really it's not very yeah. high on my list so you know I, but I also feel like on some level I'm like yeah but I don't know like I kind of like I don't know as I've gotten older as I've sort of become more sort of uh, I don't know as I as I start to contemplate my mortality right there is an right. aspect of me that wants to like yo read like every book that's like sort of touted as like sort of just because I'm like most times I have a different take on what that is or or why um that's I don't know that I find kind of personally rewarding and artistically rewarding on some level uh creatively at least uh like I don't know but I will I do it that's the question I I have my doubts like you know what I mean <laughs> like I don't necessarily know do you have like I know that you we talked a little bit about like reading sort of books over and over again are, are there sort of like big titles that you have that are like blind spots for you that are like sort of like classics that like 
you have either an intention to finally get around to, or you have absolutely no intention of ever getting around to. <laughs> yeah, I have blind spots. I'd say, mm. I think the biggest one is probably Tolstoy. I've never, I love mm. Dostoevsky. I've never read Tolstoy. So I got to get mm. around to that at some point. And um, being part of Apocalypse Confidential, I'm a little ashamed by of how little Elroy I've actually read. Mm. You know, I've only, I've read LA Confidential and White Jazz. I still need to read you know, Big Nowhere, you know, American Tabloid, all the rest. So uh, I have a lot new, of you should start with his new one, Widespread Panic. It's such a fucking fun read. Like, it's, and it's not as dense as like, you know, his other, you know, like it's not like part of the, you know, it's just a one off, you know, but like it's not part of that Underworld trilogy or, or, you know what I mean? Like, it's not like fucking what's, what's American Tabloid is obviously, I mean, I don't know. It's what's interesting about Elroy for me personally uh, is, is that like, James Elroy was someone who I had to sort of, it's always fascinating to me when I hear people say that they started reading Elroy young. Right. Because I tried to, when I was younger, the first time, like I picked up Elroy's books probably numerous times when I was like really young and I just couldn't get through them. And it wasn't until yeah, I, was, well, I mean, if you, go ahead. If you watch LA confidential and then try to read the book thinking it's going to be the same, same thing. thing. <laughs> I mean, you're a big surprise. Yeah. 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 And it wasn't until I don't, I want to, it was I don't know, maybe I was 30 or 29. I don't know. It was like later than I, then it was, I, I, no, it was, there was no way it was in my twenties. It wasn't until I was like in my early thirties where like I actually came back to it finally. And I was like, I'm going to finish one of these Elroy books. And I, and then I just, for some, something clicked in my mind and I, and it was like, I don't know, like then I could just, and now I can read Elroy, like, and, and this, this doesn't really matter. Like, because if I, I think, I think, uh, I don't know, maybe it was just, I just, I don't know, maybe it's a sensibility thing. Maybe I was just young and like, I didn't really get what he was talking about. Like, you know, cause he's referencing like all these people that I vaguely knew about as a child. Like I knew some of these people, you know what I mean? I knew some of the people he was referencing just because they're cultural icons. Like obviously I knew who JFK was. Obviously I knew who Marilyn Monroe is, you know what I mean? But like when I was certain kind of like, but he's talking about this era, like the fifties and like, this is like my grandparents era. Like, you know what I mean? Like it's cool, but it's like, I don't know. And he's got this interesting way that he's writing and it wasn't until i was like older that i could synth synthesize i can't ever say synthesize uh, <laughs> synthesize that shit and like and now i just love it like i just feel like uh he's just one of he's one of the i in my opinion he's one of the uh the greatest american writers living like you know what i mean just truly like i i just Absolutely. feel that way yeah yeah so, yeah, I mean, I mean, it's not I mean, I actually feel like if you haven't read a lot of Elroy, that's a good thing because you get to read all of this shit. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, you've if you've only read, you said you only read White Jazz and LA Confidential. So you yeah. still you still got like, you know, you obviously you've got Whitesburg Panic is new one, but you still got like Bloods of Rover. You still got American Tabloid. You know, you've still got all these great Elroy titles that you can get through. You know what I mean? That 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 that. Yeah, those they're they're definitely um, they're definitely fun books to read. I definitely like. I don't know. White jazz. If you got through white jazz, I feel like you can get through anything. Cause I feel like white jazz is like the most, uh, the first time I read, got through white jazz, I was like, it, it took, I, I feel like I got to like way past the halfway point when, when I start, actually was able to adjust to the style and it became normalized. You know what I mean? Cause the style is like so strong that like, it's almost like, it's almost like I can never get used to it until I, it's almost like you have to uh, MK Ultra yourself. <laughs> like just by like reading it over and over again, like you're like, okay, just keep reading it, just keep reading it until finally I kind of like my brain kind of like caught the rhythm of the style. 
And like the last half of the book, it was just like, yeah, I just, it was, I was able to like, I don't know. It forced me to pay attention to it. You know what I mean? That's what I probably yeah, well, meant when I say challenging, like writing that makes you forces you to pay attention to it. Well, Elroy is unique because he's known for using this clip telegraphic style that, you know, mm -hmm. basically just happened by accident, mm -hmm. you know, more or less, you know, his editor told him that his book needed to be shorter. So he just cut out a bunch of words. words. Yeah. yeah. But um, yeah, he's not writing Dashiell Hammett novels. He's not writing, mm -hmm. you know, hard boiled PI novels. He's writing these labyrinthian, at least in the LA quartet, mm -hmm. he's writing these labyrinthian uh, police procedurals. And yeah. that's that's his background as a writer. You know, he's he's a big Ed McBain fan. Mm -hmm. um, he loves The Onion Field, Joseph Wambau. And he's mm -hmm. talked about that book a lot. He's he wrote the forward to the edition that I have. Mm -hmm. So he's he's coming at it from the perspective of a writer writing police procedurals, but he's yeah. taking it in a completely different direction. So that I mean, that is unique. And I never read anything like White Jazz um, mm -hmm. when I first read it. You know, I think that for me. I love Elroy as a, as a, you know, as a, a literary celebrity and yeah. as a persona as and a I persona. love his interviews. The demon and dog. I love, it. I love what I've read of his, I love what I've read of his novels, but his sensibility as a writer is very different from mine. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I come from, you know, George V. Higgins, Dashiell Hammett and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Jim Thompson. And I know that he, he despises Jim Thompson. <laughs> so he, he, I think he looks at him, you know, he's writing these books and he, he does have this, a deep moral purpose in writing these books. And I think he just sees, you know, a writer like Jim Thompson is producing like, you know, amoral pulp trash. And there's there's an element of truth to that. Obviously, that's not all there is to Thompson. Right. But I think just, yeah, his his position and as a writer is, is so different from mine. It took me a little while to get my head around it. Yeah, it, it, I feel like that's probably the reason that like it took me that same. I was I wasn't able to finish Elroy for so long was exactly that where it's just. Yeah, like I had read those other, I guess, George V. Higgins, like you said, Jim Thompson, like I read those, man, no problem. You know what I mean? Like I was like, oh yeah, like I love I love the lurid shit. I loved all of that. Like, you know what I mean? Like, um, and then Elroy's approach is just so different. You know what I mean? Like where, where, but here's the thing about him though. It's like, while he can maybe feel that way about, uh, you know, Jim Thompson, um, it's like that stuff exists in his novels. Like it's, it's, it's like one of those things where it's like, when he describes like violent, there's like there's moments in Elroy's books that are like almost like horror. Like, you know what I mean? Like there's moments where you're like, he's describing like someone killing somebody. And it's like, yo, this is fucking some shit you would see in like Clive Barker or something. Like, you know what I mean? It's very like macabre and, and like fucking like, I don't know, like in, in, in a way sort of like cold um, and very like direct. And, and, and it's, it's like, okay. And also his obsession with sort of, you know, his obsession with with kind of the tabloid rags. I mean, again, American tabloid. Like that's all like seedy shit. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, in his new book, he's talking. He's got he's got all these characters. He's got like a what's his fucking what's a James Dean has a picture of uh he said he has a picture of Marlon Brando uh, with a dick in his mouth. Like you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like like just random shit. Like you know what I mean? Like Elroy. <laughs> like you know he's got all of these elements in his book, which is funny as hell. Like you know to hear him, you know say that he does he doesn't like Jim Thompson. But I'm like, <laughs> like come on man, like like come on bro. Uh, but yeah yeah, he's definitely uh he's definitely someone whose style is so, or not not just style. Like you mentioned, the approach his approach. And his sensibilities are very different from, you know, from most, most, most writers in general, but, but definitely from my own in terms of just the approach, you know what I mean? Like you said, this approach is just very different. Um, um, but yeah, uh, 
let's talk a little bit about movies and how movies because i always love because you know i'm a movie guy uh you know um guilty as charged uh what kind of for first of all god's a killer was was there any sort of uh film sort of influences because i have i have a tendency to read novels and i'll be like yo did this guy read did this guy watch this movie while he was writing this or was there any sort of like film references that you were making in this were there any sort of tonalities that you derive from sort of any sort of hard-boiled crime movies that you were like you know uh pulling or drawing from was there any sort of anything of that nature or no yeah i think especially rereading it mm -hmm. um I, I noticed some things that you know i had put into the book subconsciously and uh, one of the things that I noticed uh, rereading it was that Mc there was a lot of uh, McDougal came from uh, Denzel and Training Day. That kind uh. of like manipulation <laughs> and, uh, you know, getting uh, people to do things that are not yeah. in their best interest. Because I, yeah. I, I love David Ayers, mm. um, at least his kind of earlier L.A. stuff. Like I love Training Day and Harsh Times. Yeah, Harsh Times. Um, and those are basically, you know, those are almost kind of like George V. Higgins stories where it's just two guys sitting in a car talking for a lot of the movie. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, so I. That was one. And then I think in general, I mean, there have um, there have been quite a few, you know, noir, new noir films that I think it probably influenced me in some way or another. Um, I like Lars von Trier's noir stuff a lot, like uh, Element of Crime. And, uh, you know, everyone loves David Lynch. So, I mean, I got to say Blue Velvet, Mulholland Drive. You know, those have always been two of my favorite movies. Yeah, David I think is... what I took most from them is just kind of like the dreamlike quality, which is important in noir, whether I think it's fiction or film. I mean, mm. An Ira quality of noir has got to be there somewhere. So I will ask you to differentiate it from your average crime story. Yeah. So I was going to ask you, uh, what's your what what differentiates? And I know this is probably a very basic bitch question, but uh, what dif in your opinion, what differentiate what differentiates noir from hardboiled? I mean, I have my own sort of uh, thing that like, I feel I feel they're two different things for sure. And I do think there's certain elements that exist uh, that may that in a story that makes it specifically noir and that specifically makes it hard boiled. And there are times where it could be hard boiled noir, but there are times when they could be completely separate things. You know what I mean? Right. And you can also throw the gangster story in there as mm -hmm. well. So you can kind of you can mix up all these subgenres of crime. Mm -hmm. um, but I mean, that's a great question, because I mean, I think film noir, I mean, the term itself was coined almost 80 years ago and mm -hmm. it's proven to be, you know, pretty indefinable, you know, no one really knows if it's a, a genre into itself or if it's just yeah. a sensibility mm. or a tone. Um, so luckily I'm not a film scholar or, you know, a literary scholar, you know, I'm just a writer. So I don't have to worry about it that much, but I do think about it. I think with hardboiled crime fiction, what, what you're really looking at in essence, is just crime fiction that deals with sex and violence in an unsentimental way. Mm. You know, it's, it's just there, it's part of the world. Um, and you can bring horror into that because real life violence is often, you know, is horrifying. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of the writers that influenced me, um, you know, Ted Lewis, who I mentioned before, but also Donald Goins is one that I have to bring up. Yeah. Donald Goins. Uh, because, because before I read pop 1280 and I was still trying to figure out what I wanted to do as a writer, I read dope fiend yeah. and the scene towards the end where, you know, after Minnie has, has hanged herself and the body's found, I mean, that was a scene that affected me very deeply. And I thought about it for a long time because I wanted to know why. And I think that the reason why is that because it's a scene that could have only been written by Goins working in this type of, you know, pulp fiction genre, you know, writing novels for Holloway House. Mm -hmm. It's something that a more literary author or some kind of New Yorker middlebrow author would never have been able to come up with. Yeah. 
Yeah. You know, so I knew that if I wanted to tap into those feelings and emotions, I was going to have to work in a similar genre. I mean, obviously, I'm not Donald Coins. You know, we're very <laughs> different writers. But he was before I read Pop 1280. That was the one that kind of put me on the path. Mm-hmm. So Dope Fiend and Pop 1280. I mean, those are both huge novels for me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Go ahead. Sorry. And as uh yeah, as far as noir and hardboiled fiction, I mean, you could say that hardboiled fiction was an influence on noir. Um, yeah, they're not necessarily the same thing because. I love Dashiell Hammett. If you group him in, you know, if you go to the bookstore and he's in the, you know, the noir section or whatever, you know, I have no problem with that. But yeah, he's not strictly a noir writer. It's just, it's hard-boiled crime. It's different. It's um, because noir in a way, it has to be stranger, you know, a bit more erotic, uh, morally more ambivalent or ambiguous. Mm. And uh, I think there should be some kind of element of cruelty in noir. You can't have, because it's supposed to be like, it's a bad dream, basically. Right. You know, right. not not just a nightmare where you wake up screaming, but a cruel dream where you've had you think all of your hopes are going to come true. And then all of a sudden they don't. And you, feel, you realize that you've been you know swindled the whole time. You know, that's that's a common noir theme with, you know, the femme fatale and the mark and whatnot, you know, going back to the earliest days of the genre. So, yeah, there are subjective qualities to noir that you don't necessarily have to have in hardboiled fiction. You know, you yeah. can have hardboiled fiction be more almost like a straight up you know, what hardboiled fiction became after World War II, like, you know, action heroes, you know, in men's magazines, mm-hmm. stuff like that, where it's a little more, almost like a comic book, where you have these kind of like action superheroes. Yeah, I I, I look at it, I always describe like, sort of like, the two, there's a difference, like, it's almost like, um, you know, who's that guy that said, um, you know, I don't know the definition of porn, but I know it, you know, I know it when I see it, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, like, and yeah. it's kind of the same way where it's like, uh, when I look at like noir and like hard boiled, it's just sort of like there's a certain way. Like I look at like I can use like contemporaries or guys who are like writing sort of in in the same eras or writing a similar kind of story. And I could be like I like I look at somebody like David Goodis. Like to me, Goodis is noir. You know, yeah, like, he is like noir. that's noir. But then you can see someone who's writing in that sort of similar kind of vein where they're writing like a, a detective story. And I look at like I don't know somebody like a. A Brett Holiday. That's like hard boiled to me. You know what I mean? Like it's more detective-y. It's more like, you know, like like you said, more action-y. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, there is some probably some noir shit in there, you know what I mean? For sure. But 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 it's it's again, it's like not really like I feel like noir, noir is more like I don't know. It's it's it again, like I said, it I know it when I see it. It's weird to sort of like try to articulate like like I sometimes I describe it as like it's like sort of noirs about losers specifically. Like, you know yeah. what I mean? Like, like in a way that hard boiled isn't necessarily like that's not necessarily an ingredient to make a story hard boiled. Uh, you know, um, I, I read, um, well, Richard Stark, for example, that's hard boiled. You know what I mean? Like, like Parker, all the Parker books to me are hard boiled. Like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. well, that's an interesting case because I mean, if you read the Hunter, that's definitely a hard boiled novel, mm-hmm. but if yeah. you watch point blank, it's much more noir because yeah, you're, it changed you're going it. more inside yeah. the character. Yeah, there are all these that, flashbacks and everything. Yeah. So that's a really interesting case. Yeah, well, that's like, again, the movie adaptation is totally, you know, with Lee Marvin is a totally different kind of tone. You know what I mean? Like it, it took the Parker books because when I read the Parker books, the Parker books are like, yeah, they're just they're again, they're stripped down. You know what I mean? Much in the way that you kind of have your stripped down, you know, but like there's that Richard Stark kind of uh, the thing about him um, and, and, and because obviously everyone who knows who Richard Stark is, who's he actually is, <laughs> uh, you know, Westlake was a, a funny guy. Like, you know, like Westlake 
had a really, you know, obviously when you read Donald Westlake's novels, you see that like he's got a lot of funny, funny novels. Uh, and when he take when he writes his Richard Stark and he does the Parker novels, like that humor is still there, but he's just like, it's just completely like, it's not for, it's not, it's not foregrounded. Right. Like, it's not like put in the front of your eyes. It's like, it's there, but it's like, because it's so stripped down, like a lot of the humor is just in the fact that like, it's not funny. You know what I mean? Because right. you know, that it's still like in a weird way, it shows you how you can still be funny without, without like, you know, putting on a fucking clown nose and fucking, you know, doing some shit like that's like, you know, intentionally funny where it's like this, I feel like the start, the Richard Stark, all of the Parker books are, are actually very funny. Um, at the same time, very bleak and very sort of like, again, hard boiled as fuck. But yet, um, again, that's that voice of the writer that bleeds through uh, that, that I just find interesting where, where people are able to sort of, again, like do some stuff that I feel on the page that it would take certain writers uh, pages upon pages and uh, exposition upon exposition to even, to even sort of establish what certain writers can do with like a sentence or with like a look descri a description of a character. Um, the Stark books are like, I don't know. Do you have, do you like the, the Parker novels? I didn't, that's yeah, I do question. like the Parker novels. And oh, yeah, they, yeah, they're very different from, you know, the Dortmunder novels and mm, the other yeah, yeah. series that he wrote because yeah. those are just like more straight up comedy. Right, right, right. I like, yeah. I, I like, I like Westlake a lot. I mean, obviously I like his, I like, I like him writing as Donald Westlake, uh, but I also like him writing as Richard Stark. In fact, I got a book that I haven't read because I have a tendency to buy books and just put them on the shelf and add them to the pile till I get to them. But I got, I got this book of Westlake where he, he wrote the book. One, one part of the book is written as Donald Westlake and the other book is the other part of the book is written as Richard Stark. And I think you flip the cover and like on one side is Westlake and the other side is Westlake, but I guess one's supposed to be Richard Stark. I think <laughs> it's like his face is obscured or some shit. Uh, 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 and I still haven't read that, but I, I I need to get around to reading that because he is one of those guys who who I don't know like I just think the Parker novels are almost I mean I used to think like oh yeah like these are fun but like as I've gotten older like I think like I just think they're like almost like perfect books like you know what I mean in a lot of ways weirdly um so yeah I like some more than others but like every time I reread one I feel like I'm rewarded like. Like, yeah, like I can read The Hunter a whole bunch of times. It's like, I'm not going to get, or The Man with the Getaway Face. You know what I mean? Or, or just the, these types of books that like I, I can continuously return to. Um, and a big, uh, for me, you said Donald Goins, which uh, I do like Donald Goins a lot. Um, and that he got brought up in, on a, a little bit on the episode that I, when I was talking um, with uh, Duvet Knox. Uh, but, but. I listened to that one too, by the way. Oh, thanks, thanks. Yeah, I've known Duvet for a while, so yeah, he's a good acquaintance of mine. Duvet's a funny guy. Yeah. <laughs> he's a real funny guy. I like his. I like yeah, his there's, perspective. There's only one Duvet. Yeah, he's sure. unique. He's a very unique guy, and I I I, I, I fuck with Duvet for that. But um, yeah, fucking um, uh, I brought this up to Duvet too. Was Chester Himes for me is like a big, a big one. Like I don't um. And the way that you say like Donald Goins is probably Chester Himes is for me, like uh, specifically the Harlem cycle, uh, you know, the Gravedigger, Coffin Edge, Jones, the, 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 the detective novels that he wrote, like, like to me, like that's like there's something about those books that just I don't know. And even with the stuff that he did before that, like, you know, before when he was still before he moved to France, you know, like if, if he hollers, let him go like all, all that. I, I just I just love Chester Himes. Like he's just one of those writers, him and George V. Higgins for me. 
are probably like in the top. I got I I feel like I'm constantly like, you know, but those guys are always up there. You know what I'm saying? When I say like writers who are sort of like big influences of mine or big favorites of mine, I would have to say Higgins and and, and Himes. Um, and I, being that Higgins is from, you know, where you're from, I mean, that area. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I mean, mean, literally, he's he was born in the next town over from where I live. So yeah. about 10 minutes away. Yeah. Higgins is one of those guys who like, I just, I don't know, man. Like first, for, again, obviously we've already mentioned Friends of Eddie Coyle, but like Friends of Eddie Coyle is, uh, it's like in a magic trick. Like every time I read that book, I'm like, how the fuck? Like, because it's like, it's just dialogue. Right. If you really look at the book, it's mostly dialogue. Like it's not, it's very little description. It's mostly dialogue. And it's not just dialogue. It's like great dialogue. And it's dialogue that's like lyrical. It's dialogue that's like, you know, um, again, he's, he, I don't, it's just great. Like, it's just great dialogue. Like um, to the point where I'm just like, listen, I know this isn't real dialogue, but it feels real. Like, you know what I mean? Like, and I, right. and it has a weird rhythm, like a, in a way that's just like, I don't know, like it's, it's mesmerizing. It's like a fucking, he's like putting you under a spell because like you're reading these characters and they're just talking back and forth and they're just talking back and forth and they're saying these things and shit is happening, but mostly people are talking. You know what I mean? Like it's mostly talking right. and to me, like writers that can do that are like pulling off um, again it's a trick it's a magic trick it's like how how is that possible that you're able to maintain a whole book that way you know what i mean um as i look for my uh laptop charger so my, my laptop doesn't die uh okay you okay over there <laughs> yeah i'm good <laughs> yeah well i was i was lucky enough to go on the uh, the movies podcast with low res yes which I and <laughs> um about the uh, the adapted works of george v higgins so talking about mm -hmm. you know mitchum and friends of eddie coyle and also uh, killing them softly and, you know, I was rereading the novels, you know, rewatching those movies and just reading and thinking about Higgins a lot. And I think that he's a unique case because I don't think he ever intended to become a crime writer or to be known as a crime writer. He saw himself as more of like a realistic, naturalistic writer who wrote about real life. And it was influenced by, you know, New Yorker writers like John O'Hara, who were very successful and, you know, used lots of dialogue in the writings as well. So him being a U.S. attorney you know, he was specializing in a bank and mail fraud and bank robbery. So he knew these guys personally, he dealt with them. Yeah. You know, he knew how they talked, all that stuff. So I think when he wrote Friends of Eddie Coyle, you know, he famously, you know, claimed to have thrown away his previous, you know, 17 unpublished novels before he mm -hmm. got Friends of Eddie Coyle published. I think with him, he was just writing about what he knew, you know, trying to, you know, make the story engaging, you know, writing about these bank robbers. Um, but it was a big success. And all of a sudden he realized, well, shit, I'm a, I'm a crime novelist now. You know, what am I going to do? Are they going to keep expecting me to write Friends of Eddie Coyle over and over again? Because I can't do that. Yeah. You know, yeah. so with his later books, it's just, for me, they're less fulfilling as a reader because it's just more and more dialogue and there's less and less real action. Mm. You know, because there is description in Friends of Eddie Coyle. There is action. Yeah. Uh, but with his later books, it's more just kind of like the two guys sitting in a car talking you know, genre. Mm. Well, but, yeah, Master of Dialogue, one of my biggest influences for sure. Yeah, he's he's interesting because he has these other books that are like I feel like he has the books that are like in the in the vein of that, right? Which is, you know, you've got like, you know, Rat on Fire and then obviously Coogan's Trade, which got made into Killing Them Softly. He's got these those books that I feel like kind of like are if if he had like a, a cycle, <laughs> like you know what I'm saying? Like there's a certain cycle where those those 
those type of dialogue driven novels. But then he has all these other ones that are like people never talk about. You know what I mean? That are like kind of like weird. Like I don't know. Like, and I have a few of them. But like every time I look, I look for I find I come across these these weird George V. Higgins Higgins books that aren't. I don't even know what you would classify them as. They're not really crime. You know Are you talking I mean? about like Kennedy for the defense or stuff like that, that? I have that one. Yeah, that's one of them. Like he's got he's there's a lot of them, though, like where they're like, there's sort of that. But they're also kind of like they feel like in the vein of a procedural. But like, I don't know. They're like he's got this other like kind of like period of his writing that like doesn't really get talked about a lot that I feel like yeah, a lot well, of pe people don't really ever reference at all. And I'm like, he's got all these other books. You know what I mean? That like, I feel like for me, I'm still trying to like, there's a, there's a bunch of them that I want to read because I'm just very interested in that. Like the, 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 the Higgins novels that like no one tends to talk about. Cause every time you talk about Higgins, obviously there's friends of Eddie Coyle and then there's Coogan Strain and then, you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's the, it's the usual suspects. Right. But he does have uh, a lot of books out there that are just, they don't seem to be anything like those other ones. I don't know how, I don't know how deep into, to his, uh, to his uh what do you call his bibliography <laughs> i don't yeah. know how, how how deep you've read but have you read any all or how deep how deep have you read have you read all of the higgins books or, or no? no certainly not i mean he has tons of books i yeah, mean, so, like, I mean he, he has so yeah, many everybody everybody knows eddie coyle kogan's trade red on fire you know all the kind of hard-boiled mm -hmm. you know boston crime classics um but yeah he wrote a bunch of other books mm -hmm. and i mean the thing about higgins is that yeah he was a clout chaser in the sense that he wanted to be you know part of the literary elite yeah. And he was a little afraid that if he was known as a crime writer, that wasn't going to happen for him. Mm. You know, he had a separate income, you know, working as a lawyer. He made, you know, he lived pretty well. He, he you know, he dined at all the nicest restaurants <laughs> downtown and stuff like that. And just kind of like hoped somebody would notice, you know, what, you know, what a genius he was mm. kind of thing. But he never got the respect that he felt he, that he deserved. And uh, there's one book in particular at end of day, the last book he wrote, I want to read, which is supposed to be his take on um, Whitey Bulger and Steve Fleming. Oh, yeah. And the yeah, the Winter Hill Gang. Yeah, so that's, I, that's I want to check that one out. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, a lot of them. I mean, I think that if you want to read Higgins, I mean, yeah, you got to read Eddie Coyle and those few other ones. Uh, I don't actually know that much about some of his other books, um, but yeah, he obviously has he has this vast corpus of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Every time I go to like an old like bookstore, like without fail, I come across some random Higgins that I've never heard of. I'm like, yo, what the fuck is that? <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Where it's like, it doesn't even look like a Higgins novel, like in terms of like, I'm like, what is this about? Like, I can't even tell you, but based on the title, I can't even tell you when I read the inside sleeve, I'm like, okay, so what is this about? You know what I mean? Um, so I have a lot of, a lot of Higgins that I'm, I'm in, I'm going to go down that sort of rabbit hole of like all the weird Higgins stuff. That's not the Boston crime stuff. Um, because obviously, you know, the Boston crime stuff is great. Um, but I'm just very interested in like the the stuff that's not. I mean, again, I, that's what the, that's what the basis of this podcast is about. It's, it's like for, it's like finding the stuff that's sort of like the, in the cracks that falls between the cracks and doesn't sort of get, you know, it's sort of proper sort of due when it comes to sort of uh, the 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 bigger conversations. But um, is there any sort of uh, is there any sort of plans for you to sort of follow up? Uh, obviously, you've got what you're doing with apocalypse confidential was there any sort of plans of you to to follow up this book uh in the near future is, or you have something in the works that you're working on currently that's gonna that's supposed to drop in the near future uh well it, the book came out last may so mm -hmm. it's yeah we're getting on about a year since it came out mm -hmm. um 
I'm not in a hurry to publish anything else. I've been working on my, you know, my current project for a little while. It took a lot of research, mm-hmm. uh, more than I anticipated, because uh, it's going to be the first part of a trilogy, um, mm-hmm. a Boston gangster trilogy. So this, the, what I'm putting together now is going to be the first book. And I have a pretty good idea of what's going to happen in the second and the third books. I wanted to figure that out before I finished the first, because everything that's in the, you know, in the, in the first one is going to come into play somehow, you know, whether it's a character or it's, or it's a theme, Hmm. uh, you know, in in the second and third book. So I wanted to make sure I kind of had all my angles covered as much as I could. Um, So right now I'm, I'm, I just wrote a bunch of additions to the novel, like stuff that I'm going to add in. So I'm, I'm rereading the manuscript um, seeing where I can kind of slip all that stuff in just to kind of, you know, flush out the novel a bit more. Um, and then after that, I'll just kind of tighten it up, you know, try to make it, um, you know, as dynamic and as, as engaging as I can. Cool. That sounds, so is it going to be like, um, so it's a trilogy. So in terms of like length, what do you feel like this, this, the first is, are these going to be like denser books or is this going to be sort of more, again, more like a trilogy that's stripped down and sort of like it's going to be yeah, it's going to be a hard boiled trilogy so for another novelist that might just be you know the length of a single novel you mm-hmm. know my entire trilogy mm-hmm. um so but i don't really care about length because yeah, i mean yeah, yeah. the only thing that people really care about is if it's good or not they don't care that much about the length yeah i'm I'm a big i'm a big advocate for the novella like yeah just because i'm like yeah there's there's books like yeah i mean like if a book is long that's fine that's great but like it doesn't doesn't have to be you know what i mean like a book is a book. Like to me, a book is a book. Like right. some, some books are 30 pages. <laughs> you know, some books are hundreds of pages. Some books are a thousand pages. You know what I mean? It just depends on the sort of like the writer and the story that the writer's trying to get across. And if the writer feels that they got the story across in 50 pages, then they did. You know what yeah, I mean? I think like, I've, just, I've just read too many crime novels where I thought, well, if this was a hundred pages shorter, it would have been a lot better. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I've, I've read a lot of novels like that, but I mean, that's a lot of that's just a publishing thing because to sell books, they want they want them to be a certain length. Yeah, yeah. Well, I um, feel like but, you know, working independently, I don't have to worry about that. Exactly, but I feel like I've seen that happen in like the music industry too, where where there was a time when like uh, you know, in the '90s and sort of like the early aughts, where every it seemed like every album was like twenty had like twenty plus tracks on it, like just because that was the standard. And it was like, and there were so many albums that I used to listen to where I'm like, yo, this album would be great if it was like 12 songs, if it was right. like 14 songs, like, you know what I mean? And that's now it's kind of adjusted. And now it's like, you're getting albums more like that, but also like there's this new sort of, uh, there's this new sort of like, I don't know. It seems like, I don't know if it's just mainstream music, but a lot of the genre music, like it seems like there's that's adopted this new punk sort of like, way of like because you know punk songs used to be like one minute a minute 20 like i see that now a lot where i'm like you'll read you'll look, you look at an album you're like this album has 20 songs it's 30 minutes long <laughs> because like yeah, eight, well, each, song, that... each song is like a minute 20 21 seconds or some shit you know what i mean you're like what the fuck you know that's kind of cool but in a way i'm kind of like okay but this is sort of like the walter hill style thing where it's like all right you're gonna you're doing a lot though like <laughs> it's really right. well, stripped think... down yeah part of that's just you know the way people consume music is music yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, in the early 90s, you had CDs, so everybody needed to make an album that was 70 minutes long and had some, you know, secret track mm-hmm. at the end. Or if you're making a hip-hop album, it had to be at least, like, 20 tracks long yes, with, yes. you know, five skits. Yes, there were so you know, many There were so many rap albums in the 90s that were, like, 20-something. 20, 20 I'm like, bro, this was, <laughs> this was good at, like, track 
10 and then like yeah. nine, like these extra 12 songs i'm like you know what i mean like yeah, yeah. there's a lot of that that's why you know i mean hell hath no fury is one of my favorite albums and that's mm-hmm. i think it's only like 10 tracks you know yeah. so yeah you know there's not a lot of filler in that you know it's probably one of the reasons why i love it it's concise it's concentrated you like the clips oh yeah yeah Yeah, i was i was grinding on my desk you know you know like all yeah yeah clips clips has a few uh, their first several albums are like that you know very very like they're not a lot of tracks um mostly produced by the neptunes mostly um and i feel like yeah their first their first few albums are definitely pretty much front to back great because they don't they don't overstay their welcome you know um they, they get comes before you before you get tired of it is already over uh right you know what i mean so i feel like seeing that i've seen that in i've seen that in music i've seen that in books and i've seen that in, in movies where it's like like even now we see that in movies where it's like because of the uh we live in the peak marvel you know at peak marvel uh culture <laughs> uh like like all these movies are like two hours or something and you're like why you know what i mean like that it's like what happened to him making a movie like 90 minutes or less? You know what I mean? Like I'm always railing about like new movies coming out that are like an hour. Like I look at the runtime, like this is an hour and 50 minutes. I'm like, why? Like there's no reason for this movie to be an hour. And it's like genre stuff. It's like, you know, like skin of a rink. I, I swear to God, right. I'm going to stop talking about this movie. But <laughs> why? Yeah. Why is Puss in Boots two and a half hours long? Good. Yeah, better long. example. Puss in Boots. Like there's no reason for Puss in Boots to be that long. But again, like this idea of like, because the industry is looking for a certain kind of movie and there's already an expectation and it's a certain kind of length now that just becomes the standard. You know what I mean? And therefore you yeah. have everyone making shit for, for no reason where it's like half the time, like what you're trying to make doesn't kind of fit in that like that sort of like run like you're you know it's like like i wish i wish that there was some sort of i don't know like i wish there was some sort of way to sort of like in the moment like when this when that starts to happen that you could like hit a stop button and then everyone just stops real quick and be all right guys stop everyone stop okay this has become a trend (laughs) why is everything so fucking like why is it this way like can we like go back to like not everything having to conform to one, you know, to one thing, like one style, one set sort of like, uh, I don't know, like whatever's that again, clout chasing, like, you know, that's, that's kind of a theme um, of this, of this uh, episode. Uh, it's like, it's a very clout chasing behavior when it's like, okay, something in, in Avengers Endgame came out and it was, a, it was a million hours long and that did a whole bunch of money. So now everything has got to be a million hours long. Um, and it's just like, no, no, I, I reject. I reject that, um, and I refuse to see all of these movies because of that. <laughs> like, there's so many other movies I can watch that are less than that, that are that are very uh, um, in and out and tell a good story, and I, I leave feeling satisfied um, as opposed to feeling like I was, you know, um, uh, fed uh, what is it, cinematic Prozac through the screen, and then I feel like is <laughs> you know what I mean. I feel by, like- by stretching things out that long, mm-hmm. I mean you can lose a lot of the intensity. And for me, as a noir writer, mm-hmm. working in noir as a genre, that all starts with James and Kane, Horace McCoy. You know, books like Postman Always Rings Twice. Mm-hmm. They shoot horses, don't they? And those books are probably what like thirty thousand words, about one hundred twenty yeah. pages. Like you can't carry that intensity over into a three hundred page book. It doesn't work. Yeah, and so, all those James and Kane books are like slim you know they're like little slim books yeah. you know what i mean like except for that one that they put out on hard case crimes which 
I don't know what's up with that. I, I, st- I still haven't got around to reading that. But that's a, I was like, this is a James M. Kane. Maybe it's just the maybe it's just because they made it in hardback and it looks bigger than usual. Oh, because I'm like, why is it so big? It's a it's a James M. Kane novel. Like I don't understand. I think it's called like the Cocktail Waitress or something like that. I don't know. Uh, Could but, be. Yeah, he's got some novels that yeah. I've never read. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's definitely got. He's got. He's one of those writers too. This guy like novels that are lost. You know what I mean? <laughs> like they just they got lost. You know. Um, <clears throat> who's another? Who's another writer? There's a lot of writers like that. It seems like there's a lot of a lot of those guys were were high were like highly prolific in a certain era when it when it paid to be that pro- prolific, you know. Um, and they would just fucking you know. I feel it feels like they would just you know take it right out the typewriter and just send the shit off. Uh, but they're just books that you just can't find. Um, and of course, I'm obsessed with finding those type of books. Same thing with movies. It's like if I hear that, like this, this is a lost film, it's like it just makes me want to want to see it more, more than if it was like widely available, because I guess I am a hipster um, or some shit. But but yeah, like it, it's weird because um, everyone has read that uh, that Charles Williford. I feel like everyone I know everyone has it that that fucking last hoke mosley one that was unfinished where he like dies or whatever uh uh are you a charles williford fan or or, or is that yeah i like williford a lot and he's you know he's he was around a long time and he, he went through kind of different phases in his career i mean the hoke mosley stuff came towards the end and yeah and those yeah. are the most those kind of like straight up you know private you know private eye type novels yeah, I mean, he had like uh, stuff. I don't, like I don't remember if Mosley actually is one, but <laughs> yeah. But if you go back to his more mid-century noir stuff, I love the Woman Chaser. That was a big influence on me. Mm. Uh, it's a terrible title because there's no woman chasing in the book <laughs> at all. And, well, Williford wanted to call it the director, which makes a lot more sense because it's about this guy who mm. wants to be a film director and he's trying to put together his, his film. You know, get all the actors, get all the funding, all that stuff. I mean, it's a very funny novel and very. It's got the mid-century, you know, very kind of cynical black humor that you also get in thompson which uh you know which i love yeah he's one of those writers that's very interesting because like like you said like you know even towards the end of his life you know i know he i know he was in florida and he he was like a a professor and like he had tenure and he was writing these novels that weren't getting like recognition and then sort of like late in his life he sort of had this resurgence of people like finally found him and then, like you said, it was like Hulk Mosley shit, but he had this whole period of time where he was just writing and he wasn't getting him any fucking where, you know, he's putting out these books and they were just living in obscurity. You know what I mean? Um, and I, I, I definitely find that super fascinating um, because it just goes to show you kind of like how many of these, how many of these art, how many of these guys who are like held in such high regard today didn't get their due until they were fucking dead. Like, you know what I mean? There's a lot of them. There's a lot of these people where we're like, yeah, well, there's no, some of the people we've talked about did have a level of notoriety in, while they were alive and they did sort of get some of their flowers. But there's a lot of guys who, you know, I said Goodis, like no one cared about fucking David Goodis. He drank himself to death, basically. You know what I mean? Like, and it wasn't until way beyond that where even, you know, people started to even like think, oh, this guy's stuff is like worth like, uh, reevaluation or, or, or you know rediscovery um so you know don't be depressed uh if if uh you're a writer listening to this and no one is checking for your shit because you know maybe one day <laughs> well, <laughs> maybe it's one day. funny yeah that you brought up williford because i think with both him and thompson part of their resurgence was due to um 
Barry Gifford in Black Lizard, you know, when he got yeah. that rolling in the 80s. And it, the story of him discovering Jim Thompson is fascinating because mm. he discovered him in a French bookstore, mm. uh, you know, in Paris or whatever, in a, in a French edition. You know, he could read French, so mm-hmm. there's no issue. But I think, yeah, he picked up one of Thompson's books and he was like, what is this? Mm. You know, I've never seen anything like this before because Thompson was still in print and, you know, still widely read in France. Um, at that time but he was you know that was the impetus for him starting black lizard and uh, you know bringing back all those great novels whose work had gone out of print i mean thomas thompson famously you know i think all of his novels were out of print when he died yeah. i don't think he had a single one that was still in print and that's just yeah like you said that's very typical so i don't really get hung up on you know who's reading my book or how many you know it's I mean, it sold well i'm very pleased with the reception it's gotten but i don't focus on that yeah because you can't control it and so many of my heroes yeah they were not read or, you know, widely recognized in their time. So it's like, well, why should I expect any better if, you know, these guys died obscure? You know, what can I expect? So, yeah, I don't worry about it too much. I mean, that's the right attitude to have. That's sort of another thing that gets talked about a lot on, on MAS, which is, you know, this idea of like uh, do the reward is the is sort of like the act of doing the thing. You know what I mean? Like and anything else is just a bonus. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like I know. So, again, I. I, I work, you know, in, in, in at times uh, in Hollywood and I have to be around certain people. And, and I feel like when you sort of find out about this thing called the screenplay and it kind of like leads you down that path, you're surrounded by people whose whole entire reason for doing something is based solely upon like being recognized. You know what I mean? Like, and that's the, the 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 key motivation for. I mean, that's Hollywood. It's Hollywood. You know, can't you can't be mad for you know, you know, fish are gonna be fish. You know, they're gonna swim in the fucking ocean. You know, like or whatever. Like, you know, it, it is what it is. That's that's where they're at. It's Hollywood, so you can't. It, the expectation that Hollywood would not be that is kind of naive. But but it is one of those things where like I see so many people sort of their whole entire self worth is tied up into that as a creative. Right? They've decided like. Well, you know, um, I've never, this isn't, this isn't going to pay me. So it's, it's invalid. And I'm like, bro, that's like the most anti-art, anti-creativity. Like that is the worst attitude to ever have. Like, but I know people right now, like I had a dude say to me one time um, doing a podcast, he was like, he was talking about paying for the hosting, like the hosting fee. And he was like, his justification was like, I need a Patreon because there's nothing worse than paying for a podcast that you, I'm like, what? Like that to me, I'm like, I looked at him like, what do you mean? Like, so you're doing a podcast, you're making a podcast, right? You're making it right. But to you, it's an, it's an embarrassment that you pay for the RSS feed host, host the host for your podcast. Like you, in your mind, like your podcast is it's, it's a bad thing that you have to come out of your pocket to pay a monthly fee to host your podcast so that your justification for trying to monetize your podcast is so that like it pays for itself in terms of the hosting. I'm like, I, I just, in my brain, I was just like trying to think, I'm like, again, the wrong mind, the wrong mindset to have when creating anything, I don't care what it is. Like if you're doing something that's in any way related to creativity, you know what I'm saying? Um, and you're just doing it for the sake of doing it. Like that should be the sort of headspace that you operate from. And then again, and, and I feel like anything that you get, like whether it's money, whether it's sort of notoriety, that's all a byproduct of that. You know what I mean? And that's just something that like, while yes, I always say to people, hey, 
if you can figure a way to make this work for you, if you can figure a way to, to pay the bills, do it, go for it. But like, um, you should probably be doing this because, um, this is what you be, would be doing regardless if, if there was a financial component attached or not. Um, because that's the only way that you could probably be a sane person. Like, you know what I mean? In the process of doing this, because then your motivations are a little bit more pure. They're not, they're not derived from this weird sense of, again, being a cloud chaser. You know, we are uh, mutual aberration society is an anti cloud chasing uh, <laughs> organization. Uh, we do not support cloud chasers. <laughs> do not engage in cloud chasing behavior. It is, it is uh, the surgeon general's warning uh, <laughs> that cloud chasing is bad for, for health reasons. Um, and it can get you fucked up and, and you're going to be in a really bad place. Uh, yeah. I mean, at best it's a distraction and it, it takes your eye off the ball, you know, off exactly. the work that you should be focusing on and doing. So, yeah, I really try to stay away from that. Yeah, man. I feel like, uh, well, one, thanks Max for, for, uh, for coming on. Um, and uh, I did, I definitely uh, enjoyed our discussion, but I also, I, I enjoyed your book. Um, and Thank you. I definitely, I'm, I'm doing better. I'm trying to make sure that like, I don't make all my podcasts four hours. Uh, <laughs> so I definitely am. I'm a, I'm a little bit more aware of my, my guest time. So I feel like it's a good place to put a button on it. So uh, tell everyone, uh, Max, uh, where they can find your work and uh, point to all the links, all the stuff, all the stuff you're trying to get people's uh, eyes in front of. Sure. Oh, my novel, God is a Killer, is available in print and ebook on Amazon. And make sure you check out Apocalypse Confidential, which is uh, www.apocalypse-confidential.com. Uh, we've got a big Gaia Horror special coming up for Earth Day, so make sure you check that out. When are the submission deadlines for the Gaia Horror again? Because I know that, I, I, yeah, I heard. I saw April 5th. It. Yeah, April, April 5th is the deadline. So April 5th, which is not that far. So if you're, for your listener and you're that's some fiction that's falls under the under the uh umbrella of being gaia horror which is horror related to nature and mother earth going haywire i'm assuming right yeah it's gonna be a pretty good special i think it's yeah. a little more niche than you know the last one we did was love which is uh you know big subject so this one's a little more niche i'm really excited to see what we get um for the final draw on the fifth um, one more question before you go, before I, before I close this out. How, how has it been reading submissions? <laughs> how oh, has well, that been for you? <laughs> it's been great. Well, last year was, uh, you know, my first year with Apocalypse Confidential and I was fiction editor. Mm. Um, so I was, and I was working with, uh, with Dawson, mm. uh, you know, in fiction. And now he's the sole fiction editor and I'm the managing editor. Mm. So I read everything that comes in, whether it's fiction, poetry, essays, uh, but I don't respond to anyone. I just kind of see what's coming in you know, kind of check the temperature. And, uh, you know, if one of the editors, you know, if Dawson or if Tom, the poetry editor, want my opinion on something, they can ask. Or if I think that maybe we passed on something that we should publish, I can I can talk to the editor about it. Um, and just come up with the editorial schedule as well. So that's sort of my day to day. And I'm very, you know, preoccupied with the nuts and bolts of being part of Apocalypse Confidential, because I love it so much. Has reading, has, has having that role in reading sort of submissions and stuff, along those lines has that has that in any way sort of affected your approach to your own writing because i because i feel like sometimes when you, you expose yourself to a lot of material in that kind of way uh it kind of opens your eyes to things that you may not necessarily have had before because you were more you're more in an output phase but when you become more of a, like an input phase and it seems to i don't know is there any sort of correlation between that or is there any sort of like 
filtering of that sort of process into sort of how you address uh, your writing? Have you noticed at all? Not so much. I think because my identity as a writer is pretty strong. You know, I was I was writing, you know, probably 10 years before I got God as a Killer published. And, you know, I wrote probably three or four unpublished manuscripts that are just kind of sitting in a drawer. I knew they weren't good enough, but I, I kind of had to get them out of the way mm-hmm. uh, to write something that was publishable. So I think maybe if it if I had become editor, you know, earlier or a few years ago, it might it might affect my style or my approach. But I'm, I kind of know who I am and what I want to do for at least the next few years. You know, I want to get this trilogy finished. And then I've, I've got some ideas for the next couple of books as well. So not so much. I just appreciate, you know, what's coming in. And what's great about working with Apocalypse Confidential is that we work with a lot of writers who have not really been published that much before, uh, but they have a lot of talent and they finally have a place where they can showcase those talents, uh, yeah. where they actually can bring something and, you know, have people see it. So I love that part of it. That's been awesome. Yeah, there's a vacuum that Apocalypse Confidential is definitely fill- filling because, as you know, um, gone are the days of like a lot of these publications that were actually doing things like publish, giving uh, a platform for new writers to to publish work. Um, all of those, a lot of those went away. They went the way of the dinosaur. Uh, so, you know, and even some of the more current ones, like obviously, you know, rest in peace to to Gion, but you know, you had places like New York Tyrant that were, you know, putting out these weird novels because he could he could afford to do that you know um so more the more the more uh 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 rags as as jacob would say uh the more sort of rags like apocalypse confidential uh the better uh so i definitely uh i definitely uh support support you guys and i definitely would tell people to definitely check it out and again also check out uh max's book uh god is a killer it's a fun great read with uh self immolization <laughs> spoiler and all kinds of other uh all sorts of other if you like meth and bikers and uh and <laughs> i'm really selling this um check it out um and as always uh i do not know how to end podcasts so uh this is the end thanks again right, well, thank you for having me i'd love thanks. to come back anytime thank you i appreciate it who is ready with no guns? I ain't playing, having fun. I just wanna live my best life. I will give you and your ex-wife. I'm living large, but it ain't just big enough. I need these bodies dead, all stacked up. Keeping all my shit, I keep a clock up on my head. You bitches wanna test my clip, I keep it loaded, never miss. I don't give two fucking shits, you little rascal, let you run. Can't escape from Freddy's gun. Snub no forties, which one? Got my clock. Why you crying? Ask him why you fuck with this. Cocked it back and now I'm aiming at your head. Cocked it back and now your bitch's friend is dead. Pull the trigger, now your body filled with lead. Pull the trigger and I do not want no credit. Cocked